Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have a very special author on the podcast, and I'm super excited to talk to him um, and share him with you. His name is Frank Zafiro. I got it right, Frank, didn't I? <laughs> Bang on. Awesome. So Frank, say hi to all my listeners. Hello to all of Vicky's listeners. So you guys are getting quite a treat, listeners, because um, I don't know if you guys remember a few months ago, I had an article come out in the Bin Bulletin, and um, the article was featuring authors that are also doing podcasts, and Frank was sharing that article with me. And so I finally was able to get a hold of him to get him on the podcast. So we're going to be talking about authoring and books and podcasts, so it's quite a treat. <laughs> So, Frank, let's start out by you sharing with our my listeners what state in the Northwest you live in. I live in Central Oregon. Yeah, probably why you're in the paper with me, because I'm not <laughs> Central Oregon. <laughs> and so, I love it. So, Frank, you have a fun background. I um, did some research, like I usually do a little bit before the authors come on. But share with um, the listeners what your background is in um, before you, you know, as you started to transition into being an author? Uh, well, I spent about five years in the military uh, where I was a Czech linguist in military intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, after getting out of the service, I went into law enforcement. And so I spent 20 years as a police officer in Spokane, Washington, which for those that aren't familiar outside the Northwest is about 220,000 people, about mm-hmm. a almost half a million in the greater metro area these days. And uh, I did just about every job you could do or was in charge of the unit that did that job uh, throughout the course of my career. Uh, uh, patrol detective, I uh, commanded the canine unit and the SWAT unit um, and uh, retired as a captain. So I got some experience at the executive level as well. So that really helped when it came time to uh, translate that into fiction. Oh, awesome. Well, first, let me say thank you for your service in the military and as a police officer. We salute you. Thank you so much. And we're glad that you survived and you're able to be a writer, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So so let's talk a little bit about your genre because um, my listeners, um, they know they can go into my show notes and look you up while they're listening to me, but some people are driving. So you got to tell us about your genre because I love your genre and, and I can see how it, your background will lend to that. So kind of tell us about that. Well, they say write what you know. And, um, you know, I, I hadn't been writing fiction for quite a while uh, back in about 2004 when I started writing again. Uh, and so when I you know picked the pen back up, uh, it was crime fiction that started rolling out. So mm-hmm. that, kind of ran with that. So I write um, in, a, in a, uh, several of the sub, subgenres of crime fiction. I have a police procedural series. So that's kind of your Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, Southland sort of multi-character ensemble cast uh, type of series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a PI series. It's uh, kind of a spinoff from the uh, from River City, the, the procedural series. And then uh, I've written some hard-boiled series and uh, noirs and a couple of them from the perspective of the bad guy. Uh, so uh, mm-hmm. try to cover a good chunk of the genre. No cozies, uh, mm-hmm. 
and you know no no historical fiction yet really but uh, uh, procedurals and uh, PIs and, and noir hard boiled I've, I've I've been working on that pretty steady. Okay, so for those that don't understand hard boiled or don't know hard boiled can't even say it boil <laughs> genre define that for us a little bit oh that's actually a pretty active conversation throughout the mystery community okay. mystery writing community um but uh you know hard boiled is um you know it's that you know chinatown and uh you know your james n kane uh you know postman always rings twice gotcha. uh the parker novels if if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. by richard stark um I would say that, you know, rough characters, very direct writing, uh, bad people sometimes, but definitely all the characters are encountering bad situations. And uh, it's a genre where even if the good guys win, they don't get out unscathed. Gotcha. I love it. I I personally... I'm drawn to that <laughs> more than some of the other Me stuff. Too. So, because um, I feel like it's quite a bit more reality <laughs> than, than you know, some of the stuff I've read. So, um, I also read on your website that you had taken some time also to be an instructor in the community college in law enforcement. And also, did you do some writing workshops? So, share with us some of that because I have a higher ed background. That's what I do oh. full time right now as I'm in higher ed and um, working my way towards retirement so I can write <laughs> full time. <laughs> Retirement is grand, I will tell you that. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I, I, when I was still um, still on the job, I did uh, uh, several different classes that I that I taught as an adjunct professor at uh, the community college in Spokane and at, uh, at Whitworth uh, University. There, uh, just uh, you know, police and leadership related topics, uh, you know, sociology uh, things that that tied right into what my uh, experience was. My undergraduate degree was in history, so that helped me a lot in a lot of ways, but not necessarily on the instruction front. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I enjoyed that quite a bit. And then after I retired, um, I had the opportunity to teach uh, police leadership um, for uh, the International Association of Chiefs of Police uh, program called Leadership in Police Organizations. And so basically I traveled all over the country for about four years, uh, taught this pretty intensive three-week course to uh, uh, cops all over the U.S. and Canada and uh, really enjoyed that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, four years of spending a lot of time away from your wife and your home, it, mm-hmm. it just got to the point where it was uh, it was too much and I, I wasn't getting the kind of writing done that I really wanted to get done. The stories needing to be told were stacking up. And so um, a year ago, last December, I hung up my, uh, uh, my, my teaching lanyard and <laughs> went full time into, uh, uh, into teaching. Um, I did do some, uh, some writing workshops when I was back in Spokane. I had a couple of successful ones that were six week, uh, once a week, uh, you know, three hour blocks, um, per week and uh did a pretty simple format you know one Mm -hmm. one week block was write your novel the second six weeks block was uh revise your novel and the third one was publish your novel and so fantastic uh, small group six eight people each time and so Mm -hmm. you got to have that really hands-on you know sort of interaction and did any of the students from that uh, those groups stay in touch with you and and have they moved forward with their work or um what you know do you do you keep in touch with them 
Uh, periodically, yeah, not not quite as much since I moved from Spokane down here to Central Oregon. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, you know how it is. People, some people are going to finish their book, uh-huh. and some people are going to constantly be revising their book for the rest of their lives. And some people yeah. are just going to kind of fall by the wayside. It's the way. It's really the. Uh, it's really the way of it. I, I do hope that some of them follow through on the projects that they were working on because a couple of them were uh, pretty phenomenal, and uh, and they, and they were all different genres some people were writing you know horror some people were writing young adult and so it was uh, very interesting to see where different people's passions lay when it come to uh, when it comes to what they're writing oh that's fantastic well I love that you did the writing workshops um I just this last year in my community I'm connected with the writers in my area and one of um our great writers. He did a workshop through our local library. And then I um, came alongside and we just recently did a publishing panelist for independent publishers. We had three people that came on my podcast come and then shared with the group that went through the writing workshop, how they published, self-published. It was really a fun experience. Um, and also, I love workshops. I, I'm a big fan of, of being a participant and also giving back if you have a skill to share. <laughs> to help. That's exactly what it is, is giving yeah. back. I mean, yeah. the people that have helped me when I was starting out in my career, I can never pay them back. They're miles and miles uh, ahead of me in their in their writing journey. But to have the opportunity to, to help someone who's where I was at that time is is just, it's, it's very satisfying. And and so I, I got together with the local bookshop, uh, bookstore store. So we held it at the bookstore, which was mm-hmm. kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I tried to pick a price point that was enough money that they would take it seriously, but low enough that pretty much anybody that really wanted to could afford it. So mm-hmm. it was 99 bucks for a six week course. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs> pretty fair. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, you know, people didn't decide, ah, it's cold out. I'm not going to go tonight. You know, exactly. when they, they got a little skin in the game. Yeah. And, and if any of the authors that listen to my podcast know, as you start looking into starting to work on your work, you can spend a tremendous amount of money <laughs> and not have the same experience. You can do a lot of things online, but mm-hmm. I, I love face-to-face um, workshops. Uh, and also from higher ed, you know, I feel like there, we t- tend to always need to continue our education and, and writing is definitely a craft. It's not something mm-hmm. we're born with, you know, so I love that. Fantastic. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your podcast journey and then we'll go deeper into your titles because you have so many great titles. I love it. But, um, and how we got connected was from the article that came out in the newspaper about you going on the airways um, with a podcast and me going on the airways. Mm-hmm. And that's for me, the podcast Genesis came from me asking a bunch of authors that I didn't know how they got started. And then I'm sitting there going, Oh my gosh, this is such a great thing. And I'm a podcast addict. So I'm like, I can do this. I can do a podcast. <laughs> so it's taken over my life. Um, so <laughs> share with us, um, share with us about your topic of your podcast. Cause it's different than mine. Um, and also the Genesis of it and, and, um, We'll go into more details after you share that information. Well, it kind of comes from the whole, the, the same idea as the reason that I, I did the writer's workshops uh, years ago. And that is, uh, you know, I, I think the writing community and definitely the, the crime fiction writing community that I'm part of is a very collaborative and people are always looking to help each other out. And I was trying to think of a way that I could do something that would 
you know, feature other writers that would help push other writers' works yeah. because I don't have a million followers on Twitter, so I can't just Stephen King someone. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> book, you know, it's going to be on the USA Today list, you know. I, uh, and so after thinking about it for a little while and also like you, um, you know, enjoying several podcasts and uh, it occurred to me, you know what, I, I think I can do this. I've, I've done some video editing and audio editing is uh, even easier. So, um uh, so I started talking to my wife about it and uh, she, she came up with a great title, uh, Wrong Place, Right Crime is mm-hmm. the name of the podcast. Uh, and it features crime fiction authors most of the time uh, talking about their, their books and their crafts and their experience and, and pretty much anything that, that comes up as a result of that conversation. Uh, initially, uh, the first 18 or so episodes... Um, I did a format of a deep dive, kind of a 45 to 60 minute episode where we, you know, talk like a couple of late night drive hosts, you know, on the late night radio uh, and really get into anything and everything. Um, And then I ran into a situation where I had all these people I wanted to have on the show, but, you know, I I was six, eight months out on my schedule. Mm -hmm. Right. I know you're experiencing that as well. Yes, I am. (laughs) And it's frustrating because uh, you have to tell people no. And and uh, and so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to add a wrinkle. So um, I added a, a different format to go along with the, the featured um, episode every month, every month of uh, open and shut episodes, which wow. are just short eight to 12 minute ish uh, uh, episodes where somebody has a book coming out and uh, they come on, we talk for about five minutes, get to know them. And then we talk about the book for a few minutes and gives listeners a chance to, you know, meet the, meet the writer, you know, briefly, and then, uh, get to decide if the book sounds interesting to them or not. And I do that just about every off week that, mm-hmm that I don't have the featured episode. And that has allowed me to reach a lot more uh, authors and get a lot more authors uh, on the show and promote their work and, and you get to know them. So that's been great. That's super, super smart. And um, because about a year into recording, not a year into releasing, because like you said, a lot of my listeners don't know this. Well, they probably know this if they listen to every single podcast. I'm recording about four months out, sometimes five months out before the episode is released. Um, Because that's how quickly word got out that there's this podcast in the Northwest that you can jump on as an author. (laughs) And it grew very quickly to um, me having to find the time to do it and say no (laughs) sometimes. Um, but, but I like the idea that you changed that format a little bit because about a year into mine, I got tired of asking the same questions. I was like, okay, I got to change things up a little bit because for me, after the 50th interview, I was like, okay, let's change it up. And so I started doing a little more, um, and, and actually expanding a little bit outside of what my scope was. And I've done some different genres than I usually had planned on doing. So I like your short snippet ones that you're talking about. Do you, and so re, tell me again, you, re, you do one featured episode every month and then you have in between those weeks are the small ones exactly around the 15th of each month whatever that wednesday is the featured episode drops and that's a good long interview mm-hmm. and then, uh, every other week just about i mean i said occasionally i'll have a, a a dark week uh you know went to mexico around christmas time we didn't yeah. do one that week uh but uh yeah the smaller ones are in the off weeks nice 
Very smart. I should have thought of that. I have hit going in March will be my full year, full year of podcasting releasing. And I release every week on a Monday. Um, and the only times I didn't release. So I'm very proud of the fact that I have not missed a deadline yet, even when I was starting to do this, because it was a learning curve for me on the whole editing part of it. <laughs> um, the only time we didn't have a podcast release was during the Monday of Christmas and the Monday of New Year's this last year. So I feel quite accomplished in the fact that I could That's do awesome. it. <laughs> um, That's well done. You know, because you know how it is. I mean, I'm writing too. I'm working on my first novel. Um, and I finished almost, I finished quite a bit of it before NaNoWriMo. I took the month, oh, you know, the month of November, I didn't do podcasts. Because um, I took the whole month of November for to participate in NaNoWriMo so I could concentrate on just writing, which was mm-hmm. so nice <laughs> just to write. Um, and then I've been doing workshops and things like that in my community. And I also work full time. So it's hilarious because my husband um, was the one, he also encouraged me to write. And then one day I woke up and said, I'm going to do a podcast. And he's like, what? He just woke up and said, I literally woke you know up and said, he's like, <laughs> he's like, are you kidding me? And I go, no. He goes, you don't know anything about recording. I go, I've sat in plenty enough studios with you to watch you guys. My husband's a musician. And he goes, oh, really? yeah not the same thing. And I go, probably not. Let's try it. <laughs> so my husband in good faith and loves me so much that I needed a new laptop, of course, and I needed the new mic. And so I did all the research and got everything I needed. And then, and then I just went for it and I recorded a couple people and it took me a long time to figure out the whole format. I listened to podcasts on how to do podcasts too. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of research. Mm-hmm. And then after about the third interview, I was like, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I got this down. <laughs> so, so, but he was, he was actually very surprised. He's, I, I will tell you, he'll tell you too. He's my biggest fan. Um, he, he, cause he comes from music background and we have a lot of musician and studio um, engineers in our lives. I was terrified to let out my first podcast because I'm like, oh, yeah. they're going to know I can't do this. And I'm like, Nope, I'm just going to do it. You know? And um, I've gotten great feedback from all of them. So I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the technology learning curve for anybody that's sitting mm-hmm. there in the back of their mind thinking, I really want to do a podcast. It's such a cool thing. Share with us your experience. Did you, was it a learning curve for you? Absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 So, I think, uh, I think it, 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 the learning curve exists on a few different, uh, on a few different planes. I mean, there's the technical learning curve in terms of getting the raw interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got to make sure you, you have a decent microphone and you're not over modulating and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and then there's the, um, the presentation piece, learning mm-hmm. not to talk over people or trying not to mm-hmm. uh, providing some pauses. So it's easier to edit later. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a pretty talkative person. I, uh, I really enjoy the give and take. And, and one of the things I had to really be conscious of was, uh, Hey, I, this is about the guest, you know, 98% about the guest. Uh, the only thing I'm there for is to make it 
you know, seem dynamic, but it's about mm-hmm. the guest. And, and, and so, uh, there, there's, you know, coming up with good questions, uh, you know, all, all of the stuff in the performance side of it. And then there's the editing and production piece that, that mm-hmm. can be uh, a little daunting uh, as well. Um, I, I went pretty simple. I, I bought a blue Yeti microphone. Hey, me too. <laughs> yeah, I and, I, and I, and I asked another podcaster, uh, a friend of mine named Derek Beatner. He's, uh, one of the two uh, hosts of uh, Writer Types, which is a, a great podcast and ins- inspired me to start podcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, that's what he uses. And so, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and it's reasonably priced, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use Audacity as my uh, editing software and that's uh, open source free, free yeah. software. It does a great job. Um, and so, you, you know, you get better with everyone. I think I'd cringe if I went back and listened to the first couple of <laughs> episodes at least on the technical side of things yeah. there are great interviews and I had Dave Seltzerman on for the first episode and he was awesome yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, but yeah I think I, I probably encountered much the same curve of, as you did I just didn't have a, a, a musician husband and a bunch oh, of I haven't asked him for any help I'll tell you that Frank he, he loves to tell the story that he didn't believe I could do this right I mean he had all the faith in me that I would learn because I'm a lifelong learner and he goes he tells people he's like she's never asked for help from me or any of my friends on this she she'll stay up late and watch youtube videos or she'll go read a book or she'll ask other podcasts but she won't ask us musicians for help well good on you that's that's uh that shows some real dedication and and well, he's he's fabulous at everything he does. So I have to make sure I rise up to the challenge on my end of things. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the funny story I'll share with you, because I think you'll appreciate it. Any other podcasters that might be listening to this will, will find this funny. So my first two interviews, I didn't have a recording system yet. So I didn't know that. I kind of thought you could record through Skype or something like that because um, I use Skype for work. I, I'm a remote employee for my university so I do a lot of online work and online meetings and webinars, um, but I didn't even think about, you know, how to, how do you do interviews? And so I set up my first interview with a girlfriend of mine that is local and we were going to do it at a coffee house. And I thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool to have the coffee house background in the background, you know, this will be great. And so I cleared it with the coffee house owner and she's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. No big deal. So we get there. It was the loudest um, experience in the, like just the background noise. And I didn't dawn on me until I got there and I start recording and I'm like, we can't do it here. I'm never going to be able to edit that much noise out. (laughs) And so we, I had to go back to figuring it out and, um, thinking maybe I need to find a, you know, a quiet community room that I can meet people with. And then I read somewhere on um, one of my searches and a gentleman said that he was using for his podcast Zoom and he has people call in. I'm like, oh, duh. <laughs> I never have to leave my house again. This is awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I, I use, uh, use call note, which is oh, a yeah. call recording program. And then it'll, work whether i'm using google hangouts skype or facebook so i just basically use whatever i google hangouts is the best for me but uh the others work pretty well and i just use whatever the guest is most comfortable with yeah yeah that's nice well i've stuck with zoom and it's worked pretty good for now um there's only a couple things that i'm not thrilled with it but i think that's just the nature of technology it's never going to be perfect um so okay so let's talk a little bit about oh i wanted to mention audacity too so 
you know, what's funny is that I started out with Audacity and I use the Mac. And then all of a sudden, halfway through about episode six or seven, my Audacity stopped working and I had a panic attack. I'm like, no, I have episodes to get out, you know? Um, so I ended up using, I just now use GarageBand. I just edit in GarageBand yeah. and I'm like, okay, that yeah. works. <laughs> I just got through listening to a podcast that went for like five years uh, called the history of Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy named Mike Duncan did it. And you can really hear the difference in the quality of the podcast from like the first episode to about the 10th. And then it, it, it evens out after that. But uh, uh, he uses, he used GarageBand the entire time as well. I think yeah. it's Mac answer to audacity. I think it is too. And I was a little nervous about using it to start with because it does have a bit of a learning curve on it. And, but all of my music studio musicians that have professional studios, they use GarageBand for quite a bit of stuff. So I was a little familiar with it from watching, not because I've actually played with it myself. (laughs) But the one thing I found that I didn't like was that it does change my levels. Like GarageBand will just notoriously take the levels down really far um, on the finished piece. And I was listening to one and I couldn't hear anything. I'm like, oh no, now I have to fix this. So I had to go and do some research. And so, so moral of the story to any of you that are listening about podcasting and you think you want to do this, you might be spending a few nights in a panic watching YouTube videos, figuring out how to bring the levels <laughs> of your audio up before you release it. <laughs> <laughs> I released one, uh, uh, you know, after you, you record your show and edit it, you have to export it, you know, you mm-hmm. have to, uh, and I just export as an, as an MP3 file, but which is also coincidentally the format of the interviews, the raw interview footage. And I uploaded one show that was, uh, when I interviewed Fleur Bradley and, uh, uh I got a, email from my friend, Eric, actually, who said, Hey dude, uh, you just, you just uploaded the raw interview there oh no that's my biggest fear (laughs) (laughs) and i was away from home when he that i left almost right after i uploaded it so i i was able to take it down but i wasn't able to uh to fix it and get to the file for a few days so well thank you friend for calling but still absolutely seriously is my biggest fear so i do it a little differently i have quite a process but i i go from wave to mp3 and then back, uh, uh, so I'll use Wave to do my sound levels because I use a different program to make sure that GarageBand isn't mm-hmm. leveling it down too far to bring all the levels up to a nice sound. But so I actually label all of my um, episodes that I'm working on as I'm editing them if I leave them on my desktop and I get it to final. And then if, I, if it says final, I know it's the one I can send out. But here's yeah. the thing, I'm so paranoid of that happening. I'll listen it to into iTunes almost in entirety after editing and finishing before I load it up into my platform. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just as worried these days. I just, I grabbed the wrong file because I was yeah. in a hurry and it oh, just, yeah. uh, was, uh, I, you know, I don't have thousands of listeners, so I didn't get thousands of emails, but I'm glad I got the one. But I, I'm terrified of making the wrong, you know, doing that and then having the author come back and say, that wasn't that great. I'm like, oh, Oh, dang, what happened? You know, so, so anyways, because for me, it truly is the way I do the format for the podcast. Like you said, it's really about the guest. And I love to have authors on and them share their work. And I want people that are listening to the podcast to fall in love with them and buy their work, you know, and, and learn about publishing and writing at the same time and hopefully inspire somebody else to write a book or something. So, so it's, it's a total labor of love. I don't want it to sound like crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we have the same mission. Yeah, yeah. 
So let's, well, thanks for all you listeners to enduring our podcast geek moments as we were talking. Insider baseball there. (laughs) It's so much fun for me to talk with somebody else that's doing a podcast because I I don't talk to that many podcasters. I read a lot of blogs, but I don't talk to a lot of them. So it's a lot of fun. So thanks for sharing that with us. Of course. So let's talk about you and and your writing again. So you have several series. So share with our listeners who don't know you so they can get hooked um, your series. And then um, we'll talk about the book that you're actually going to read from today. Okay. Um, well, uh, the f- I guess my flagship series, I, you could say, uh, is uh, called the River City Series. It's that ensemble cast uh, procedural series that uh, I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, it starts with a book called Under a Raging Moon, um, set in 1994 and moves forward from there. Um, and it's, it, you know, the idea there is kind of like, you know, Southland and NYPD blue, this, you've got, you know, half a dozen or so characters that, that, that ebb and flow in, in their roles throughout the different books. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, set in uh, fictional Spokane, um, I, I fictionalized it because I was still on the job when the first book wow. came out. I was going to ask that question if any yeah. fellow <laughs> members of the <laughs> your precinct. I wasn't sure. I wasn't yeah. sure how they'd respond. And yeah. even though the series is a very positive series in in, in respect to, uh, to law enforcement, I mean, the cops are definitely the good guys in this series, no question about it. Um, you know, they're not perfect by any means, but they, uh, you know, they're the good guys. And uh, But I still wasn't sure. And so I, uh, I used a pseudonym and and uh gave spokane a pseudonym as well so uh it's very thinly veiled river city initially i made a few changes just for the sake of changing things and and after the the first couple of books i uh, stopped changing anything i didn't have to Mm -hmm. uh and people dig that if they're if they're from spokane or they've been there they like the you know to be able to envision Mm -hmm. uh, where where this is happening and so forth uh and so this this series is uh has five books now um with uh two more should come out uh this year uh by the end of the year um and uh you know there's been different characters that have been made the main character or supporting character but really one or two have kind of emerged to be the center of the series uh there's thomas chisholm who's a a veteran police officer uh and vietnam vet remember this started in 90 uh 94 so Uh, Vietnam wasn't that long ago for, mm-hmm. for some, uh, and and you know he's your typical well nothing typical about him. But he, <laughs> he's your uh, career patrol officer who looks out after all of the, his team members and including even his sergeant, uh, who has uh, has some wit but uh, is also pretty intense. Mm-hmm. The veteran that everybody looks to, um, and then another character that really emerged as a as a kind of the heart of the series for me and and will be at least through book seven uh is an officer named katie mcleod Mm. Uh, and and she became you know she had kind of a support role in the first two books had a pretty big event happen to her in the second book that uh uh was was a pretty difficult one to write much less for her to go through and -hmm. then by the third book she was arguably the 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 would be the star of the movie if it was a film Mm -hmm. uh and what I like about her is that, you know, she's, you remember these start in the mid nineties and, mm-hmm. and will be up to 2003 by the end of book seven. So mm. uh, uh, I guess it's historical fiction. Uh, and she's, <laughs> <Loosely>. <laughs> yeah, 
it looks like she's dealing with, uh, you know, she's dealing with uh, being a, a woman in what was largely, and, and I guess still is, largely a, a male-dominated field. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's a tricky thing to do because, you know, she doesn't want to sacrifice her femininity, but she certainly wants to be a professional police officer and, and she wants to be known as a good cop yeah. for the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she's vulnerable, but but, but tough. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, she's definitely become, if not my favorite, one of my very favorite characters in the series. Let me ask you this before you jump into the other series. Did you plan this as you were going, as you were writing these books or did you have a loose kind of idea where things might be going and you just let the characters come to you to, as you wrote? Um, I, you know, what I had a, the biggest idea about was the, the primary obstacle uh, that the cops were going to have to face. Mm-hmm. So in the first book, they're, it's pretty straightforward. They're facing a serial robber who's hitting convenience stores and becoming progressively more violent. Um, and, and then so I knew that was what they were going to deal, deal with. And then I kind of pantsed it a little bit in, mm-hmm. in regards to how they chose to deal with it. I, I knew a few scenes were going to happen, but how we got there was, was, uh, uh, we kind of, mm-hmm happened as it happened mm-hmm. as the series has progressed uh, that's somewhat remained true in terms of here's the obstacle that they're going to face uh, but I have had to be a little bit more structured in terms of what's going to happen because mm-hmm. there's so many inner interlocking parts now because you're getting into you know four or five books and exactly so forth. Uh, so I do plan them a little more now uh, than I did it for the first book. Awesome. Well, the reason why I ask is the way you talked about Katie is it sounded like she developed as you were writing her. Like Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. I love that. And I think yeah. readers feel that as they're reading, they're like, oh man, she's, you know, she's coming out of the woodworks as this amazing character and they're going to fall in love with her as much as you did as you were writing her. So, yeah, it was an interesting journey because initially in the first book, uh, you know, there's always Thomas Chisholm, but uh, probably the main character of that first book is a young officer, three years on the job named Stefan Copriva. And he's kind of a hotshot, not in a bad way, but, mm-hmm. you know, kind of in a, in a, in a positive sense of the word. And, and, um, the Katie McLeod character, as she was finally realized in the in the finished version of the book, initially uh, everything she did was was split into two different characters. There was uh, Katie McLeod and this other officer, and they they both, you know, Katie McLeod was the love interest, and this other officer was dealing with uh, some pretty heavy stuff uh, of her own. And I realized this all needs to be the same character. I mean, oh, you know, I quite enough on their own and and I want a strong character so I merged them both into uh just Katie and uh uh so she had you know a support role in that first book and then in the second book she she kind of started to to steal the show I love uh, it and and Copriva you know spoiler alert but Copriva leaves the department after the second book and, and uh-huh. actually that's the second series I'll tell you about which is Stefan Copriva mysteries uh, he leaves the job uh, after the second book in the series and uh, there's a spinoff series of uh, a first person mis- first person mysteries that uh, uh, star Copriva uh, and those are set ten years after he leaves the job so they're. Okay. 2005 and forward and there's three of those now the first one's called waist deep and um and for copriva it's largely it's it's a redemption arc it's a redemption tale he leaves the job in a 
bad way. And so Oh, gotcha. He's looking for some redemption. And he gets some in the first book, but maybe not enough. And uh he's still he's still working towards it uh, three books in. Um <laughs> like a human would right? <laughs> like any human, exactly. <laughs> Um, and, and those are the only two series that I write by myself. Um, I have several different series that I write with other authors. Um, uh, I mentioned Eric Beatner earlier, my friend, uh, uh, and, and he's another author. He and I teamed up for a series called the, uh, the bricks and cam jobs, uh, or the list series, if you prefer, because the word list is in all the titles. Uh, it starts in the back list and then the short list and the getaway list. And the the back list, it, where it all kicks off, is uh, about these two uh, hitmen, uh, uh, Paula Bricky, a.k.a. Bricks, and, uh, and Cam. I forget Cam's last name. Uh, Eric wrote Cam, and I wrote Bricks. I, was say, I don't know how you keep everybody together anyways you have so many books you've worked on i can only handle one <laughs> well we uh we wrote it in a in a format that i've used in in several different series with several different authors and that is a dual first person narrative with right. alternating chapters so i wrote bricks and he wrote cam so like chapter one would be bricks from the first person and then chapter two would be cam from the first person and it works really nicely on a variety of levels. Um, for one, uh, as writers, you, you really can focus largely on writing your half of the book, although there's mm-hmm. a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. From the reader's perspective, you get the intimacy of the first person. You get mm-hmm. to be at the head of a character in a way that you can only be in, in first-person narration. But because you're getting two different perspectives, you know more than either of the narrators do, and you get a more complete picture like you do in the, you know, more of a, a third-person uh uh, style, third person POV. Uh, and so what's going on in the backlist is that the mafia is downsizing. Uh, they, <laughs> I know they did that. <laughs> they're, running, they're running into some financial problems. So and, they're just killing everybody off. <laughs> well, they uh, kind of, they yeah. decide that uh, these, they, they give both Bricks and Cam, uh, unbeknownst to each other, um, uh, a list of back account back list of accounts that need to be settled and tell them hey you know we got a couple of people doing this and whoever does the best job gets to keep their job the other person gets laid off oh that's hilarious uh, so the uh, bricks does her thing and cam does his thing and of course eventually they come across to each other and uh and and i won't spoil any more of that but, <laughs> but i love the survive. premise that, that's fantastic that's really really good <laughs> Uh, and then I wrote a book, uh, a series with with uh, Jim Wilski, uh, who's a great short story author, and and he wanted to write a novel, and and he wanted to give it a try as a collaboration uh, uh, first, and and so we collaborated on uh, what we call the Anya series that was just re-released by uh, Down and Out Books. Um, and we use that same format uh, of, of that dual first-person narrative with alternating um, uh chapters and uh it's kind of an interesting format for this series though because um in each of the four books it's two male narrators Mm -hmm. uh, and we each took one of them um and yet the series is called the anya series because this this kind of siren uh grifter um 
uh, femme fatale sort of character named Anya, uh, she's the thread that links all four books uh, because it's a different two narrators each Mm -hmm. each book uh, in a different city. I mean, Blood on Blood, the initial one is in Chicago, and then we go to Vegas and Northern California. Uh, and then in the prequel, uh, Harbinger, which just came out recently, um, we go down to Florida, uh, mm-hmm. and get, get her origin story. So, uh, so that was pretty fun. Um, the first guy I ever collaborated with was Colin Conway, who he and I wrote a, a standalone set in my river city universe called some degree of murder. And that's just been, uh, reissued by down and out books as well. And we've teamed up with a new series, a uh, four book arc that starts, uh, in, uh, Charlie 316 that will be out in June. And in some degree of murder, we, that's where I came up with this dual first person narrative that I used in some of the other books. But, uh, when we teamed up again after, gosh, I mean, we, we wrote some degree of murder in like 2005 and published it in 2012. And we just, got Charlie 316 going about a year and a half ago. So after a good 12, 12, 13 years of not writing together, when we came back together to write some more, we went with this uh, uh, more of a standard, uh, you know, third person, multiple characters. Mm, Gotcha. Viewpoint for this. Uh, And Charlie 316 is uh, kind of a topical novel because in the opening scene, a a police officer is involved in a, uh, an officer involved shooting on a traffic stop. Uh, but there's a few twists uh, um, when the investigation starts. Uh, turns out that the the uh, driver was shot in the back, and that there's no no gun um, on the scene. Hmm. Uh, and then in an, another little flip of the script, uh, the the driver who's killed is a white guy, and the officer who is a stellar stand-up officer, pretty much a model of what what a good officer looks like on the, on the police department, he's black. And so oh. it's kind of the opposite of what yeah, you, flipping it around a bit. <laughs> country, yeah, so, uh, and so that, that's a four book arc that we're working on. Um, I also wrote a couple of books with Larry Kelter, New Yorker. We wrote the last caller, which was a straightforward, uh, detective novel, uh, starring an NYPD detective trying to, you know, solve, solve a crime. That was a first person, uh, just a single first person, which I was a little leery of when Larry said, yeah, I don't want to do that dual narrative thing. It's cool. <laughs> and all, but yeah, I just want to do a first person, single voice. I want this guy, John Mochia, you know, to be just the one character. And mm-hmm. I was a little worried that we would have, you know, a schizophrenic guy who, yeah, you know, yeah. when I wrote these chapters or this scene, it would sound one way and then his would sound a different way. And we'd have somebody just, it would be rough and uneven. Uh, but ultimately it wasn't, it wasn't exactly my voice or his voice, but it was a singular voice. Uh, and I attribute that, I think, to, uh, the fact that we both very heavily edited the entire book, regardless of who wrote what. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, maybe Larry wrote this chapter, but my editorial hand is pretty heavy in there too. And so the voice is kind of meld all the way throughout, um, and uh, when we turned to write a, a book called Fallen City uh, later on, we uh, decided to do that in uh, you know third person, multiple viewpoints. Um, and so uh, that came that came out a couple of years ago. And that that's a I guess that's a an historical novel too. It takes place in the late '80s, early '90s in uh, Washington Heights, New York, during the height of the crack epidemic, and. Mm-hmm 
against the backdrop of the Dominican gangs that were, were driving that. Um, but those are the series that mm-hmm. I, that I've written. Uh, got a few standalones as well. Yeah, you have about uh, one, two, three, six of them. I'm looking on your website. So mm-hmm. listeners, you got to go on the website. There's just a tremendous amount of work, a body of work on here. So so six standalone. Now, I don't know where you have time to do a podcast, honestly. <laughs> where do you have time for all this? Crying out loud. Well, keep in mind that, Leo, I mean, uh, um, uh, roughly half of my books have been collaborations. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, that's like writing about three quarters of a book, not a whole book. So mm-hmm. I cheated well, a little bit. You're, you're making me very interested in collaboration by listening to how you're working with others. I think I love collaboration in a lot of ways because I do a lot of work and I love it. Um, I just never really thought of, you know, seriously collaborating on on novels, you know, collaborating on anthologies or something short or small, but not novels to the extent that you've done. So you're, you're making me think about that idea. <laughs> well, the thing to think about if you're contemplating that is it has to be, I mean, I've been very fortunate in that everybody I've collaborated with, um, uh, including uh, Bonnie Paulson, who I wrote the trade-off with just uh, one of those standalones, all, all of them have been outstanding people who, Um, sure they were good writers in their own right. And that's of course important, Mm -hmm. but just as important is the willingness of both writers to uh, subordinate their ego to Mm -hmm. the book. And, and much like when you hand your book to somebody that, you know, is a friend of yours and said, Hey, be brutal, but be nice. And they come back and they say, you need to change this and this, and this is stupid and this sucks. And this is great. You you know, they're on your side. And if, if you can do that, with, with your collaborative partner, uh, you always end up with the best possible book you're going to get. Um, I would, boy, I, it would be damn near impossible to do, to do that kind of collaboration with someone if it was my way or the highway type of attitude. Exactly. And, and, but, you know, here's the thing that I'm finding and, you know, I'm relatively new to working on my first novel. I'm a historical fiction writer. And, um, I, what time period are you? um, Elizabethan around. Um, Yeah. So, um, and I wrote almost the whole novel. It's almost all completed. My first draft. I say it's my first draft. It's probably the 10th version of the first draft. <laughs> and um, finally got my courage up to work in a writer's group. Now, the writer's group I'm with is a very special elite writers group in our area, they invited me in and I was like, are you, wow, that's awesome. you don't even know my work yet. You never really read it, but they saw the work I was doing with authors in the podcast and they were hearing, you know, about stuff and really believed in me. And I was terrified and I've been with them now. We've gone through several chapters of working on my work. And my first fear was getting that feedback and how I would handle it. You know, it has been the most amazing experience. Mm -hmm. So we meet every two weeks and we share with each other. Each one of us are in a first draft of a book. Some of them have already been published several times in their career. And two of them are journalists. And so it is some of the most exciting time to have another author come in and say, hey, did you think of this? Or did you know that this should be maybe, you maybe should look at it this way, you know? And I found so much joy in it where I thought I would be terrified and, and get terrible feedback. Now I have a very positive group. So that's Absolutely. a big plus. We're that's all the biggest positive. thing right there is yes. just that positivity. Yeah. My, my friend Colin, he, that my part, my writing partner at this point um he joined one about a decade ago and and uh 
had exactly the opposite experience, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And it really did a number on his confidence when he didn't mm-hmm. write for a number of years. And, uh, you know, really, it really took having some positive experiences to, to bring him back into the fold a bit. Um, but, you know, it's all about, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to help each other out or mm-hmm. trying to make somebody else feel like you're better than they are? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. We were just talking about that in my group. So one of our members that actually formed this group, he had another writer's group that he met with um, in another city. And he had that group for a long time. He's the author that's been published four times, traditionally published four times. So he's kind of like, I call him my godfather in writing because he's, I feel like he's my sage and great advice. But he told us this last time we met that he just finally disbanded that group that he'd been with for years because of one person in the group was so super negative. And no matter how often he tried to guide and get that person to share great feedback and helpful feedback, it just did a number on everybody. And after being in the group with us, because we just formed this version of us um, and we've been meeting uh, long enough to feel like we're really comfortable with each other. He's like, I can't go back to that group where there's that negativity not when you have a positive experience, you know, and life's and too short to deal with that. It kind of. really is. And when you're a writer, you just, we already deal with self doubt. So we don't need the added pressure of somebody making you feel like crud. <laughs> well, and you can tell me all day long that, uh, that, that this sucked or this was horrible. Or, I mean, I mean, my wife, Christy is, she's my first reader and she's mm-hmm. brutally honest, but I know not only that, you know, how she feels about me with, you know, being married. Uh, I also know that she's a fan that she yeah. like, she believes in my writing. She believes in my books. She enjoys them, but uh, she's not afraid at all to, to say, well, I don't believe for a second that Katie would do that. And here's why, yeah. or this made no sense, or this person is stupid. Why is he even in this book? <laughs> <laughs> my most Thanks. recent book, the, the one I'm going to read for, uh, um, for you here in a bit, I guess is, uh, yeah. Uh, the menace of the years. It's the Fifth River City book, and and uh, because a character dies in the Fourth River City book, I mean, with the title of "And Every Man Has to Die," you have to guess that somebody might die. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of had to change some dynamics a little bit, and so I brought some minor characters, uh, a couple of minor detectives, and gave them a bigger role in this book: uh, Detective Finch and Detective Elias, and. Uh, you know, I've written like five or six different short stories. One's basically novella length with with these guys, and I like them and I know them. And Christy did too, but she did not dig them at all in this uh, in this new book. And she's like, "You need to cut out Finch and Elias. They suck." It's oh. like, well, I can't cut out Finch and Elias, but I, tell me why they suck. And you know, yeah. and some of the you know, and and she wasn't being mean at all because she's like, "I love this book." And mm-hmm. I, you know, she believes in me hundred percent, but having that, you know, you can take that kind of harsh criticism or that blunt direct criticism when you know what the person's intent is, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Do have a better book. They want you to be successful. Yeah. If you're going to collaborate with somebody to bring it back around to that, uh, and, and write a book together, uh, you have to have some pretty important conversations early on. And yeah, exactly. And I think the conversations would probably go on as you're writing, you know, so the, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. But you know what? I know my listeners are dying to hear your story. <laughs> Some of your writing. <laughs> and so am I. So I'm ready to go. So let's do this. Um, 
So set up the scene for us that you're going to read okay. around and without, you know, sharing too much so you, that nobody will buy your book. Um, but they have plenty of books to choose from. Seriously, people, mm-hmm. there's a lot of books on his website you can purchase. But, and then I'm going to go quiet and let you listen. Um, I'm going to listen while you read. But before we do that, I have one other question, Frank. I read somewhere mm-hmm. that you're going to be in Portland for a convention of some sort. So share with us, our listeners, about that. Uh, Vancouver, actually. Vancouver, Vancouver okay. British Columbia. Oh yeah, Ooh, one of my uh, favorite places in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. I taught I taught up there when I was uh, teaching the leadership courses, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty well known mystery conference uh, called Left Coast Crime oh, uh, Conference, and they they bounce around all over the West Coast, uh, uh, different location each year. Um, it's not the biggest of conferences, but it's good sized. It's uh, and and it's uh, meant to be both a reader and a writer conference. And um, I'm, so I'm heading up there, got my panel assignment earlier this week. Yay, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. And then a really cool thing happened. There's this, uh, there's this uh, uh, thing called Noir at the Bar. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't. And that was another thing I was going to ask you about because I saw that too. So explain yeah. that to us. Uh, North the bar is something I, I can't remember the first couple of guys that did it, um, back on the East coast, but, uh, Eric Beatner is largely responsible for kind of getting it, uh, resuscitated and, and up and running, but it's all over the U S now and anybody can host one. It's, it's, uh, uh, not a copyrighted sort of thing. Uh, but what it is, is, uh, you get five or 10, some, somewhere in there, a number of, uh, crime fiction authors together in a bar and they all read maybe five to seven minutes from, from something allowed you know and and uh you know people listen and drink and because they're drinking you sound like uh oh you're fantastic <laughs> Ashley Hammett or yeah. Hemingway or something and it's a lot of fun it's oh, a good it's a good, really cool. uh, good fun so I was I was really pleasantly surprised when uh, uh the guy that is organizing the uh, Noir at the Bar up at the Left Coast Crime Conference uh asked me if uh, if I'd take part in it and I, I couldn't say hell yes soon enough. I mean, no, that sounds so great. So um, hopefully, when is the conference going to be? So uh, it's at the end of March. I think it's the okay. 28th to the 31st, is, if, if well, I'm not mistaken. Well, lucky us that your podcast will be coming out. So listeners, if you're listening and, and you're like, you know, right before this and you want to, you happen to be going up to Vancouver, go to the conference. <laughs> go up to Frank's yeah, help him out and say, I heard you on Vicky's podcast. That's, <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> That's one of the best things about conferences is all yeah. the connections that you make, all the people you get to meet. Yeah, there's and there's nothing more exciting to an author or a podcaster when somebody comes and says, I love your podcast, or oh my word, you're my favorite author. You just feel like, you know, the world could end right then and there because you're so happy. <laughs> and I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Stephen King. They all, it, it always is welcome when it somebody is. says, Hey, I, I really love your work and nobody gets tired of hearing. That. No, we don't we really don't. Okay. So Frank set us up. I'm going to go. I just wanted you to share that information because it's, you know, mm-hmm. timely. I want people to go find you. Um, and, um, so set us up. I'm going to go on mute so you can share with us your story and afterwards I'll take us out. Okay. Um, this is a, uh, an excerpt from, uh, the Menace of the Years, which is the fifth River City book. Uh, and actually, it's the very beginning of the book. It's the opening chapter, and you get to meet Katie McLeod here. So um, at the beginning of the book, there is an epigram that, uh, that I want to share with you. It's uh, a quote from Henry Miller that says, The world dies over and over again, 
but the skeleton always gets up and walks. So, uh, obviously, chapter one is uh, uh, taking part in part one, and this is set in River City, Washington, on December 27th, 1999, Y2K, and we are, uh, it's coming up, and we are uh, on a Monday at 0326 hours. Officer Katie McLeod jumped slightly at the alert tone that broke into the early morning winter silence, which had settled into her patrol vehicle. She'd been staring at the amber screen of her newly installed mobile data terminal, trying to figure out all of the commands to navigate through its various screens. She'd been at it for over half an hour, struggling with what seemed to be unnecessarily difficult key combinations for the simplest of functions. At least this graveyard shift had settled into a quiet one shortly after bar closing, allowing her to focus on learning this new tool. Computers were supposed to make things easier, she thought, not harder. The alert tone was accentuated by a flashing text on the four-inch screen. Baker 112, 16 and 22, came the familiar steady voice of Janice Kozlowski, one of the graveyard dispatchers. She didn't wait for the patrol units to acknowledge her initial, her initial call. 2808 East Joseph, report of a burglary in progress. Katie dropped her car into gear and started in that direction. There was a time when a call like this would have resulted in a flood of adrenaline, but now it barely registered a drip. Too many false alarms, she supposed, she supposed. And too many times dealing with the real thing, she realized a moment later. Even so, she turned on her overhead lights, not bothering to engage her siren. Traffic was nearly non-existent at this hour, and there was no need to let the bad guys know she was coming. <laughs> Janice continued her broadcast. The neighbor from 2809 reports three to four men approaching the victim house. One may have been carrying a rifle or shotgun. Calls into the residence go unanswered. 2808 East Joseph, burglary in progress. At the mention of firearms, the missing adrenaline zinged through her. Katie eased through the S-curve, climbing to Illinois Avenue. The roads were mostly clear, but still moderately slick. Not quite chain weather, but bad enough to warrant lower speeds and extra attention to her driving. She reached for the microphone, instinctively waiting for Thomas Chisholm to acknowledge first. Baker 112 from Francis and Wall, came Chisholm's gravelly voice. Katie uttered a clipped 16 copy into the mic and returned her hand to the wheel. 122-3400 West Carolina, West Carolina, Connor O'Sullivan transmitted, obviously out of the car and on his portable radio. She pressed her lips together, the thrill of catching a possible burglar momentarily dampened. Both men were outside of Baker Sector. Chisholm was coming from a favorite graveyard patrol break location, a convenience store where officers frequently stopped in for coffee or to write reports. It was one of the few that was clean, had a few booths for sitting inside, and an owner who was law enforcement friendly. And it was only six blocks into Adams Sector. Sully's location was even deeper into Adam's sector, off Indian trails. She knew why he was there, understood it completely, but it still meant that she was going to arrive on scene long before either of them. Janice obviously did the same math. Any units closer than Baker 122? She asked. There's no reply. Katie knew James Kahn and Paul Hero were out of jail, booking someone on a domestic violence call from an hour ago. Sergeant Shen had returned to police headquarters to do whatever sergeants did in their offices. Paperwork of some kind, she figured. 
Aaron Norris finally chimed in. At a 105, I can start from Joe Elby. Not closer, Katie muttered. It was actually about the same distance away as O'Sullivan, but that wasn't the part that irritated her. The fact that Norris was at a Joel B. Stadium told her he was parked and probably sleeping, if he was alone. Already past your location, O'Sullivan replied, and Katie could hear the big block of engine of his patrol vehicle surging in the background. Be careful, Sully, she whispered, and no sooner were the words out of her mouth than the back end of her own car slid to the right. She corrected immediately, keeping her movements small and controlled, and steered out of it before any skid could develop. When she turned onto Crestline, she found it recently plowed. Strips of asphalt showed through the snowy street in patches, and she risked driving faster. If there had been traffic, she probably wouldn't have, but empty streets begged for greater speeds. At Wellesley, she turned right and found the roadway even clearer, so she punched up her speed as fast as she dared. Any update? Chisholm asked the dispatcher. Negative 112. Katie braked for Regal, turning northbound. She had to slow down again. The street had at least two inches of snow and ice crisscrossed with tire tracks. She shook her head in mild frustration. It hadn't snowed since sometimes yesterday, and the plows hadn't made it past the arterials yet. Joseph Street approached quickly, even at her reduced speed. Two blocks away, she killed all of her lights, cutting through the wintry night like a stealth bomber. She knew 2808 would be on the south side of the street, probably the second house from the corner, so she pulled up short of the intersection. Baker, one, Baker 116, on scene, she transmitted, then shut off the engine without waiting for the reply. She was out of her car in a flash, sliding her side handle baton into her belt with one hand and easing the driver's door shut with the other. The latch caught with a muted click, much quieter than the telltale sound of a slammed, slamming door. With any luck, they still didn't know she was coming. Mounds of snow lined both sides of the sidewalk, creating only a narrow footpath for Katie to walk on. She strode as fast as she could while remaining quiet and hopefully not slipping and falling on her backside. As she approached the corner, voices cut through the cold night air. Now, 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 came a male voice, gruff and confident. They're still here. Another shot of adrenaline flared in Katie, feeling like a warm spray on her shoulders and chest, and zip then zipping out to her extremities. She crouched slightly and drew her pistol, all without breaking stride. Whoa, ordered the same voice. A car door opened and quickly slammed shut. Ricky, goddammit! Katie abandoned the sidewalk and moved swiftly to the side of the brick house on the corner. She needed to have some kind of cover before she engaged the suspects. With her left hand, she reached up and keyed her mic. 16, suspect still on scene. Copy, 16. Katie reached the corner of the house. She was keenly aware of the large plumes of her breath visible thanks to the corner street light. The porch light of the house she was next to was turned off, and she was grateful for that. Porch lights blazed from several other houses, though, and Christmas lights threw colorful beams across snowy lawns. A car engine rumbled to life. Ricky! Katie peeked around the, the corner, bringing her gun up in case she had to fire. A green four-door was parked in front of the victim address. A wiry man in a black ski mask stood in the open passenger doorway, looking back toward the house. She couldn't see if he had a weapon or not, but if the complainant was right and he had a rifle, then she was severely outgunned. Then again, at this distance, if he had a shotgun, the advantage went to her. Engage or wait? Tactical considerations flew through her mind like algebraic equations. She was outnumbered, but didn't know for sure by how many. 
possibly outgunned. That 30 yards away, and with only porch bulbs and Christmas decorations for light, her accuracy with a handgun under stress was questionable. The backdrop for any shot she'd have to take was residential houses on the other side of the street, likely full of sleeping people, innocent people. She knew she should wait for backup, watch and wait, try to get a good look at the suspects, the license plate on the car. A shill scream erupted from inside the house. Ricky, now or we're leaving. The man at the passenger door of the car bellowed. No, Katie thought, they're not getting away. She took a deep breath to steady her nerves, then leaned against the corner of the house for support as she raised her glock. River City Police, she yelled, her voice carrying across the dirty snow between them. Don't move. The man's head snapped back toward her. Without hesitation, he raised a rifle from along his leg and pointed it toward her. Katie ducked and moved around the corner just as he blasted away at her. The heavy boom echoed through the air, followed by an unmistakable click-clack racking sound. Shotgun, she realized. Eat her, Mike. Shots fired, she said, trying to keep her voice even. Immediately, a siren erupted in the distance, followed by a second even further away. The sound was comforting for a brief moment until followed by another realization. They won't get here in time. She was on her own. Katie made a quick move to look around the corner again. The man was still pointing the shotgun in her direction. She ducked back as he fired another blast at her. The pellets tore into the brick, sending chunks showering into the air. She didn't wait for him to rack another round. As fast as she could, she leaned around the corner, drew a bead on the shadowy figure, and pressed the trigger. The gun bucked in her hand, but the sound made it seem like a muted pop to her. She wondered for a moment if she'd had a malfunction, but when she fired again, everything still worked. She heard the metallic thunk as her rounds struck the car. The man ducked inside the open passenger door, slamming it shut behind him. Katie hesitated, then fired again at the side of the door. She was rewarded with another satisfying slap of bullet-on metal. The engine revved and the tires spun on the icy roadway. The car slid to the side, then fishtailed back the other direction before coming under control and leaping forward. Katie held her fire. A dark figure streaked into her peripheral vision, running from the house toward the car. Wait, he hollered after the fleeing vehicle. The car whipped, whipped around the corner and accelerated out of view. Kimmy, uh, Katie aimed at the man they'd left behind who was without a mask. Don't move, Ricky, she yelled, making an educated guess. Police. Ricky's gaze spun toward her position. The streetlight wasn't bright enough for her to make out his expression, but she could almost sense his panic. His hands were out to his sides, though, and she could see the clear outline of a gun in his left hand. Drop the gun, she ordered. Ricky glanced down at his left hand, froze for a moment, then flung it away as if it had burned him. She heard it land in the crusty snow. Katie's, uh, Ricky's hand went into the air in the universal sign of surrender. On your knees, Katie ordered, dipping her barrel slightly to accentuate the command. Ricky didn't move. Katie reached for her radio. 16, suspect vehicle has fled with at least two suspects, armed with a shotgun, last southbound on Haven, green four-door caprice or similar. I have one at gunpoint. As she spoke, Ricky's arms wavered and started to drop. By the time she finished her transmission, his hands hovered at shoulder level. On your knees, she repeated. Now, Ricky ran. Katie let out a small curse, holstered her gun, and took off after him. She considered checking on the victims, but immediately rejected the idea. That would mean letting Ricky escape. 
and that wasn't going to happen. Kitty crossed the yard, which was calf deep in snow, until she got to the walkway. Then she was able to speed up. Luckily, Ricky stayed on the sidewalk. His thin form streaked down Joseph Street, the slap of his boots echoing back to her. She lengthened her stride, hoping she didn't hit a patch of ice, fall, and crack open her skull. Her baton slapped against her leg with each step. 16, I'm in foot pursuit, she managed to report as she sprinted. Eastbound on Joseph. Copy 16, suspect description. Katie didn't reply. How many people are running like a bat out of hell down the street at four in the morning? Besides, she could already feel the bite of the cold air in her lungs and decided to save her energy. Ricky took her right on Haven, just like his getaway vehicle did. Maybe, she, he, maybe he was hoping that they were still around the corner, parked and waiting for him. He even, slowed slightly, he even slowed slightly, looking around, which allowed Katie to gain a few yards on him. She redoubled her efforts, pumping her arms and leaning forward as she ran. Ricky must have sensed her coming because he glanced over his shoulder and took off again. But his hesitation cost him, and Katie rapidly closed the distance between them. She steeled herself for a running tackle. Somehow, though, Ricky was able to match her speed, and, and after another second or two, it seemed like he was pulling away. He's too fast. Somewhere in the back of her mind, Katie heard the wailing siren that had been drawing closer and suddenly in a blink. Without thinking, Katie reached for her baton. The action caused her to slow slightly, but she didn't care. She drew the heavy baton, grasped it by the end, and cocked her arm. Then she flung it square at Ricky's retreating back and missed. The metal baton sailed past his right shoulder and clattered noisily to the sidewalk ahead of him. Katie would have cursed again, but her breath was already starting to become ragged in the freezing air. The surprise of the baton flying past him and hitting the sidewalk caused Ricky to duck a moment later. His delayed reaction threw him off balance. Katie felt a surge of satisfaction as Ricky's, Ricky's foot caught something slick. He windmilled crazily and then crashed to the ground. She lowered her head and sprinted forward again. Ricky rose to a knee and pushed upward, but his foot slipped underneath him again. His knee slammed under the sidewalk, into the icy sidewalk, and he let out a howl of pain. Katie slammed into him, her momentum driving him prone. The pair of them slid several feet, Ricky on his belly and Katie riding him like a sled. Even as they came to a stop, Katie was scrambling upward to pin his head to the ground by placing her knee across the back of his neck. Ricky howled again as she drove his cheek into the cold cement. Katie ignored his cries. Hands out to the side, she panted, trying to catch her breath. Get off me, Ricky screamed. Hands, Katie ordered. Ricky complied half-heartedly, flopping his arms out to the side. That was good enough for her. She reached for the nearest gloved hand, grasped his first two fingers, and applied her wrist lock. Ouch! Shut up, she muttered. Katie brought his arm up and levered it against her knee, removed her handcuffs, and ratcheted the first cuff onto his wrist. She lowered his wrist to the small of his back. Give me your other hand, she directed him, applying some pressure to his back so he knew where she wanted him to go with his free hand. Christ, get off me, it hurts. It's cold and it hurts. Your hand, Katie repeated. Ricky brought his hand back. She took control of it, pushed the glove back, and slipped on the second cuff. Out of habit, she checked both cuffs to make sure they were effectively tight, but not biting into the suspect's wrists. Then she reached for a radio. Headlights, punctuated by flashing red and blue rotators, washed over her as she transmitted. Baker 116, one in custody. Code 4 here. And there ends the scene. 
go Katie, go. I'm totally hooked on her. (laughs) (laughs) And it's obvious that you have a background in as a police officer, because I love how you wrote the scene. We all can feel it. (laughs) I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Great job, Frank. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us all of your um, great titles and your work and listeners. If you happen to be up in Canada, go find them for that conference or or at least go to the bar for the reading. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's been great. And I really appreciate the, uh, um, the promotion. Yeah, I am so glad we met via a newspaper. So <laughs> we'll definitely, we'll <laughs> you might be the first person I've met via a newspaper. <laughs> I think I know you might be my first. So, <laughs> well, Frank, uh, Frank, great luck on your uh, podcast and keep doing it and all your writing. And it was a pleasure to have you. You as well. And it was great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.